0: Why do we kiss under the mistletoe? What is Advent? What is the Christmas tree? Are these pagan things that we do as Catholics, or is there a rationale to it? I'm joined today with Dr. Michael Foley. He's the author of Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe, Christmas Traditions Explained. He's also the author of over 500 articles a dozen books, including this one, Drinking with the Saints, Drinking with St. Nick, Drinking with Your Patron Saints. Dr. Michael Foley, welcome to the podcast. How are you and happy Advent?
1: Happy Advent, Taylor. Thanks for having
0: me on. This is great. So um, I just became aware of this book and I haven't read the whole thing, but I've been looking through it. And uh, the title is provocative because, you know, we Catholics often get accused of doing all this pagan stuff, right? Like, oh, you... You kind of follow the Bible, but then you sneak in, you know, a little paganism here and a little paganism there, and Constantine this and so on. So, just set the 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 record straight. Why do we kiss under the mistletoe? What does this mean?
1: Well, I'm afraid they actually do have a point about (laughs) baptizing some pagan things, and uh, mistletoe is one of them. But that's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, we know that. According to St. Paul, we're supposed to take whatever we see that is good and inoffensive from the culture that we encounter. So the Druids thought mistletoe was a magic plant. It was green in the dead of winter. It grew, but it never touched the ground. It even buried in the, uh, had white berries in winter time. So they often made peace under the mistletoe. And so when Christianity came to those lands, uh, Christians added their signature sign of peace, which is the kiss.
0: Okay, so that's kissing on the middle. Now, might we say, though, that this is not even a Christmas custom, or is it associated with winter or just when mistletoe was available? I mean, what's the significance of connecting it to December?
1: For some reason, it was uh, among the Druids, an especially important thing during New Year's. So it wasn't necessarily Christmas, it was New Year's. And there are some old traditions that you can only put the mistletoe up on New Year's Eve. And then other traditions were no, you can only put it up starting on Christmas Day. You know, now it's not that big a deal anymore, but it did have a special association with winter and especially New Year's.
0: So it's accurate to say it's not actually a Catholic custom or a Protestant custom. It's just sort of this holdover of our European patrimony or
1: memory. That is true, except for the kiss. Okay. The kiss of peace is a quintessentially Christian gesture of peace. And, it you know, kissing under the mistletoe does become a big thing only because of Christians.
0: So is this the idea? Because we think of it now as like a romance. You know, you you get the girl you like and you get her under the mistletoe and you're like, oh, we're under the mistletoe. You got to kiss me. Um, so it's kind of more of a of a of a ploy to get a girl to kiss you. Or, you know, I we have a little mistletoe in our house and, you know, every once in a while I get, get under there with my wife and give her a kiss. Um, so how did it become romantic as opposed to just sort of let's make peace between, is it two warring tribes or?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, that's always the problem with the kiss, right? That uh, even liturgically, the kiss of peace started out as a labial kiss that is to say a, a kiss on the lips yep. and then by the was it 2nd or 3rd century Clement of Alexandria was complaining that it had turned lascivious even during the mass and that's the reason why they started to segregate the sexes the men on one side of the nave and the women on the other so yeah there there were always risks involved with the custom of kissing
0: right now, when I was a little kid, I had this idea that I was going to make some extra money during December. And so I went around and collected mistletoe from trees and I tied a little rubber or not a rubber, a little red band on it with a rubber band and went house to house to sell mistletoe. It's a pretty good business model, isn't it? Did it work? Well, I found out that the mistletoe berries are allegedly poisonous. Yes, yes. Well, So that kind of killed my business model as a kid because then these parents were saying, well, aren't those berries dangerous for kids? I don't want to put that in my house. And that kind of killed the deal.
1: Oh, well, (laughs) they were were being pusillanimous. I I know. So there is one funny tradition about the berries. I think this was in the Victorian era. You could kiss under the mistletoe, but every time you did, you had to remove one of the berries. And when all the berries were gone, the kissing power of the mistletoe was over.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. There you go. And hopefully you didn't have to, like, eat the berry because that'd be bad. I don't know. Leave a comment below. Are mistletoe berries uh, poisonous or were these just people not wanting to buy my mistletoe as a kid? I don't know. Maybe it was a fake excuse. Uh, I don't know. Okay. So the other one is the Christmas tree. You'll hear people say, oh, you're worshiping Thor you take a tree, you bring it in your house, you worship it. What's the origin of the Christmas tree?
1: So one of the things I discovered is that there are myths about Christmas myths. And one of them is the Christmas tree. I grew up being told that this was a, a pagan Yuletide holdover. And the truth is, it's not. It is a quintessentially medieval Catholic invention.
0: And how is that? What? Where does it come from?
1: It comes from December 24th as the unofficial feast of Adam and Eve. Uh, it was the official feast of Adam and Eve in the Byzantine rite. It never made it to the Western calendars officially, but it was observed unofficially as such. And uh, the idea was it set you up for Christmas. Here's the story of the old Adam to explain the need for the new Adam. And so they would stage mystery plays on December 24th depicting the Garden of Eden. There would be two trees on the stage. Uh, One tree was the Tree of Life. It was decorated with unconsecrated wafers, which were later changed to sweets to signify the joys of eternal life. And then the second tree would be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which had red balls to signify the forbidden fruit. When these plays were eventually discontinued, people loved the trees so much that they moved them from the stage to their home, but they combined it into a single tree which they decorated with both items. And that is the origin of our Christmas tree. Yeah,
0: fascinating and i've heard that the the red bulbs or red balls signified the apple and would you want to maybe explain how in the medieval tradition how the the word the latin word apple became associated with the
1: forbidden fruit oh because apple in latin is malum yeah and so that also means bad right so apple was a popular contender for the forbidden fruit um, another one was pomegranate but yep same thing red red ball so the red ball can do double duty no matter what fruit you have in mind
0: yeah fascinating it really is so it's not about worshiping thor it's more to do with the origin story of genesis which was depicted on december 24th which is the feast of adam and eve now i could have sworn dr foley that i've seen in missiles some reference to Adam and Eve on the 24th. Am I imagining something? Is there any Roman right reference to that? Because I feel like I've seen that.
1: It may have been in the commentary. Okay. Maybe yeah. there's something in the Roman martyrology, although I, I would be suspicious. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know that it was a Byzantine explicit feast, but that it was never officially on any Western calendar. Okay,
0: good. All right. Well, let's move on to a topic that I'm very passionate about, and that is Saint Nicholas. Again, we'll have people say, "Oh, this is um, worshiping commercialism," which I think, and we would grant that. You know, the the Santa Claus with the Coca Cola red and all that is kind of the American commercialized. But what's the origin story on Saint Nicholas in relationship to Santa Claus?
1: Well. First of all, you know that Saint Nicholas was a real man and a great saint, a Catholic bishop in from present-day Turkey, and during his lifetime, he earned the reputation of being the people's champion. Uh, he was a protector of the poor, the wrongfully accused, and, of course, children, and after his death, his patronage of those people only grew and grew. And... So did legends about him. So he became this miraculous gift giver on the vigil of his feast, December 5th. He was very popular all throughout Europe as a gift giver. And it wasn't until the early 1800s that he was transformed into Santa Claus. And we can thank a group of American authors from New York City, What they basically did was they took the old Dutch stories about Santa Claus and they combined them with elements from Norse mythology, specifically about Thor and Woden. Thor, for example, was the god of fire. His color was red. He was associated with the chimney because of fire. uh, he, He piloted a chariot pulled by goats. And in the sky, and when the goats uh, trod upon the clouds, it made thunder. And so they took these Norse elements, they took the Dutch story of Santa of Saint Nicholas, they put them in a blender, and they flipped on the switch. And that is where our Santa Claus comes from.
0: Yeah. So it seems that you know these were obviously Protestant Americans. They didn't have any uh, appreciation or category for a saint, St. Nicholas, that that doesn't have any traction for them. So what they did is, is they sort of created a comic
1: book version of St. Nicholas. Is that right? I don't know what their motives were. Washington Irving genuinely seems to have liked St. Nicholas. He, he speaks fondly of the stories about St. Nicholas in New York City at the time. Um, Clement Clark Moore was an Episcopalian uh, reverend and professor um, of a professor of classics, I believe at, at the Episcopalian seminary in New York. He's the one who wrote twas the night before Christmas, which really added to the Christmas legend. He's the first guy to identify eight reindeer in a sleigh. Um, But he kind of did it as a lark and he actually published it anonymously because he didn't, He was a prestigious classics professor. He didn't want to be associated with this tripe, but his kids liked the story. And so, but then when it became a big hit later in his life, he said, yeah, I was the one that wrote that.
0: All right. Makes sense. Now, I've noticed that in Austria, there's not just St. Nicholas who comes and brings gifts and says, are you being good? Are you being bad? But there's also this fellow named Krampus. Did you do any study on Krampus?
1: One of the big surprises in researching this book was the dark side of Christmas. Mm. A lot of regions of Europe have a very spooky sidekick to St. Nicholas. In Austria, you're right, it's Krampus, who is this demon. Uh, in the Czech Republic, the demon is called Chert. Um, in France, St. Nicholas is accompanied by Père Futar, which literally means father whipping. He was the innkeeper who had murdered and dismembered three boys that St. Nicholas miraculously remembered and brought back to life. And so the innkeeper's penance is to be his sidekick for all eternity. And the idea is St. Nicholas is such a kind man, he doesn't punish naughty children directly. Um, so the spooky sidekick sort of takes care of the naughty children. But there's a deeper theological point behind this, and it is that Nicholas has conquered evil. Uh, Nicholas is the patron who subdues the powers of evil and can, like God himself, even make good use of bad things, such as you know demons and murderers.
0: Yeah, you know, maybe we should circle back on the St. Nicholas legend because there's two very interesting legends. Maybe you can comment on whether they're legitimate or not. One is the father with the three daughters, the poor father who the three daughters might have to go into prostitution, and Nicholas intervenes. I mean, there's another one that has a, a triple in it, and that is the three boys who get murdered and placed in, I believe it's pickle barrels. You want to tell those stories? They're great stories. I tell these stories to my kids at night during December. They love it.
1: They are great stories. And you asked about their accuracy. The first one about the daughters could, could, I mean, the the bottom line is we just don't know Mm -hmm. which of these stories are true and which aren't. But the first story could very easily have been true because it was unfortunately common uh, in Nicholas's age that parents in destitution would be forced to sell their children either into prostitution or slavery. There are other patristic saints that actually mentioned seeing this as they walked by a slave auction and how traumatized they were to see this. So this was a, an unfortunately common thing. And so when Nicholas threw bags of money you either down the chimney or through the window to save three daughters from prostitution. Um, it could very well have been the case. The original story, though, also adds an important note about discretion. He did not throw three bags all at once. He threw one bag of, of money through the, the man's window to see what the man would do with the money. And if the man was just going to sort of, you know, throw a party and not take care of his daughters, he wasn't going to give the guy any more money. But he saw that the man used the money properly as a dowry for his eldest daughter, and that saved her from prostitution. When he saw that, then he threw the second bag. The man saved the second daughter, and then he threw the third bag to save the man's third daughter.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I never thought of it that way. Okay, now what about the three murdered
1: kids in the pickle barrel? Now, that's a that's a tall tale. Okay. Um, so, and the way it migrated is really weird. It could be because of uh, bad medieval art that that story was invented, because the earliest account we have is Nicholas saving three military officers who were unjustly accused of murder. And he personally appealed to Constantine and got them, uh, you know, uh, exonerated. But they were often portrayed in medieval art uh, in a circular jailed window. So you picture like three males in a circle with Uh. the bars. And somehow that morphed into three youths in a pickle barrel.
0: (laughs) Now, we have a tradition in our family of the pickle ornament. Do you cover this in the book?
1: Um, I only learned about this after the book came out, but now it seems like everyone's talking about the pickle. Uh, it's crazy. It's a, so it's a German custom, right? I've heard
0: two different origin stories. One is it relates to the pickle barrel story that there's an extra ornament on the tree of the pickle, which kind of harkens back to St. Nicholas and the three murdered boys in the pickle barrel who get resurrected by Nicholas. And so the other story I heard had something to do with world war II and a pickle. I can't quite remember the details on how that worked out or maybe it was world war one. But in our family, there's an extra ornament. It's a glass ornament, a blown glass ornament, and it's a tiny little pickle. And what the parents do is they put the, uh, pickle on the tree and you either get an extra present or on new year's eve we usually let the kids open one present early but if you find the pickle you're the first one to see the pickle on there you get to have two presents i don't know what the authentic tradition on this is but there's this pickle and i've mentioned it on my podcast before and i can't believe like you said how many people i thought we were like weird people that did this but apparently tons of people do the pickle
1: Absolutely. Um, You you can you can. I actually just recently bought some of these (laughs) uh, because it hasn't been a part of our family tradition, but we're making it so. Okay. I I will say this much. It's not unusual to put food on the Christmas tree. I mean, you've already got the wafers, the candy canes. Um, One of the things I discovered is animal crackers. The reason why animal crackers have the little string handles on the box is that they were designed to be a christmas ornament is that right wow that's amazing
0: now going back to this krampus fellow in the Mm -hmm. book you also talk about other dark sides of christmas like witches and demons and all that maybe
1: tell us some of those stories it's amazing how many stories there are about witches goblins elves which were originally scary creatures before they were tamed to make toys for Santa. Um, A lot of this is pre-Christian pagan holdovers because winter was a scary time back in the day, right? It was food scarcity, uh, problems with getting heat, bitter cold, long nights. You know, we think of Halloween as the spooky season. For the pagans, Halloween was just opening day, of a very long and scary season, which would not end until the springtime. So this was the time when evil reigned. And so it's cool that we Christians celebrate Christmas in the dead of winter, because the symbolism is very clear. The light pierces these nights of dread. But in order to appreciate that, you still have to have an appreciation for the dread. So... So the Christmas celebration always happened against this backdrop of evil. So when Dickens has Ebenezer Scrooge visited by three ghosts on Christmas Eve, he's drawing from a very long and frightening tradition. Which is? The the tradition of ghosts. Ghosts, all right. Ghosts, demons, witches. There are all kinds of superstitions about, you know, these creatures roaming the nights around this time of year yeah
0: now do you kind of on that note do you as a catholic professor have a belief or theory on marley in ebenezer scrooge's tale Marley is in chains he's dead he's coming back to talk kind of like hamlet's father Uh, Is he in purgatory? Is he in hell? Or should we not make any theological judgments on this? You know,
1: that's a great question. I've never thought about it. I believe that Hamlet's father, um, Hamlet's father intimates that he is in purgatory. Right. I think, yeah. Um, Although I actually think there's evidence that he is a demon pretending to be Hamlet's father in purgatory. Yes, I've heard that one, too. Yeah, what well, about Marley? I I don't know. Yeah, uh, I I don't remember what what details he gives other than being in chains. Yeah, he's in chains with his, yeah.
0: It's it's uh, I don't know. It's kind of a mystery. You know, I don't I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't read too much theology into it. So, okay, very good. And I think this kind of makes sense too when we think about you know Christ in uh, the Old Testament. I think it's Malachi. He's the Son of Righteousness. Uh, We're in the the deepest, the darkest uh, moment of the year. It's cold. I mean, if you look back at records of people dying, most people died December, January, I believe. That's the Mm. most popular month to die in because that's when it gets cold. And people know, you know, if you're older, if you're over 40, probably in the old days and you get into winter, this might be your last one because that's when people tend to die.
1: You know, absolutely. And so um, you had ventilation problems. You know, you needed to keep the house warm. And yet uh, it was difficult to do so. So if you've ever read the novels of uh, Sigrid Unset, which describes medieval winters in Norway, you really get a sense of this is a frightening season. And yet that's what makes Christmas so much more special. One of the greatest joys on Earth is Christmas coziness. But coziness is something that can only happen. Coziness is comfort in the midst of discomfort. It, it, you know, like a couple in a Corona beer commercial, they can be chilling out, having a good time, but they're not cozy. Right. A, a tropical beach is nice, but it's not cozy. It's only when the weather outside is frightful that the fire is so delightful. Yes. So it is that darkness, that bitterness that makes Christmas actually so, so memorable and enjoyable.
0: Yeah. If you're out camping with a cheap tent and it's snowing, it's not as fun as if you're inside with a fire and a cup of coffee looking out the window pane. That's exactly right. I think that's part of the the coziness is, is partly gratitude. Like it's miserable out there, but man, I'm feeling great right now. I think you're right. I think you're right. Okay. What about there's an interesting story here about a heat wave leading to a popular Christmas song. What's that about?
1: July, 1945, Los Angeles was having this terrible heat wave Mel Torme visits his writing partner, walks into the guy's house, can't find him, but he looks over at the man's piano. And he sees four lines on a notepad, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose and so forth. He finds his friend. He says, what's this? And his friend says, Mel, I've tried everything. I cannot cool down. I've taken a dip in the pool. I've had a cold drink. I thought if I could just mentally get myself into winter, that it would sort of cool me down. And Mel said, well, you've got a great song here. And within 45 minutes, the two of them had written all the lyrics and the melody. And that very afternoon, they went to their friend Nat King Cole and said, listen to this. They played the song for him. Nat's eyes grew wide and he said, that's my song. Wow. And he recorded it, and it is the most famous Christmas song in history. And it never would have happened if they had had air conditioning in 1945.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Now, there's another story about a Christmas hymn and a broken organ. What's that about?
1: Yes. Well, um, as a fellow lover of the Latin Mass, you'll understand There was an Austrian priest who very much wanted to have a high mass on Christmas Eve for his congregation, but the organ was broken. And so he was unable to have a misa cantata, but he wanted to do something to console his congregation. So he dusted off a poem that he had written after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Stille Nocte, Silent Night. And the silence of the night was celebrating the end of the guns of war sounding across Europe. And so he asked a friend to put music uh, to the poem that could be accompanied by piano, which uh, his friend did. And that is the birth of Silent Night.
0: Huh. So that was the very first time that it was sung or performed was at a, a mass. That is Correct.
1: But it had to have been a low mass.
0: Right. Interesting. All right. What about the 12 days of Christmas? People get this wrong. I'm still surprised that that people who are, I assume are intelligent, they still think the 12 days of Christmas are the 12 days leading up to Christmas, with Christmas as the 12th day. You see this on well, TV and commercials. How this confusion, obviously it's not that. So explain what that is and maybe how this confusion set in.
1: Oh, it's so frustrating. Well, it's it's advertisers. They're trying to take this to make a big buildup for Christmas sales. But the 12 days of Christmas go back as far as the 6th century, and they mark the period of time between December 25th, the birthday of our Lord, and January 6th, the Feast of the Epiphany. And the older model was that During the month of December, you had Advent, which was a period of joy and anticipation, but also restraint and mild penance. So there was restraint, restraint, restraint. Then Christmas comes. That's when you pull out all the stops and you had this unbroken period of merriment. You made sure that all the animals, all all the food had been slaughtered and prepared, All the wood had been chopped prior to the 12 days of Christmas. And then during those 12 days, shops were closed, uh, law courts were closed. Um, Even the livestock were supposed to get the day off, according to St. Francis of Assisi. Everyone was supposed to rejoice in the incarnation for those 12 days.
0: So how should people, I mean, we're already deep into Advent here, but how should people, understand Advent, and then the 12 days of Christmas, and then Epiphany, and then people even say, oh, leave your tree up to February 2nd, Feast of the Presentation. Do y'all personally do that? So walk us through a traditional Catholic Advent. And I mean, I just learned like a few years ago, you're not even supposed to eat meat on the 24th. That's traditional. So maybe the history of Advent, how it should or was uh, celebrated or observed with penance, the twelve days, Epiphany, and
1: then February second. Can you? Can you? That's a lot, but can you run through it? Oh sure. So, so the thing to remember about Advent is that it was an intelligent compromise between two different traditions. Uh, the Church in Gaul thought of Advent as another Lent. They called it Saint Martin's Lent. They fasted. They suppressed the Gloria, they used violet vestments, but in the city of Rome, it was, Advent was a joyful time. They had the Gloria, they wore white vestments, and they did not fast. Eventually, the two met in the middle, and so, in a sense, each side agreed to give up something. Uh, so, Rome said, all right, we'll, we'll put on the violet vestments, we'll suppress the Gloria, but we're not fasting. <laughs> um, and the Gauls are like, all right, fine, um, but we're not doing white vestments. Um, so, so, there, so Advent is kind of a brackish season. It, it's a mixture of different things, but it actually kind of makes sense. Um, on the one hand, if you know the Savior's coming, you're excited. On the other hand, you realize, well, I gotta get my house in order, right? So there is gonna be some penance. It's not gonna be a full-on fast, um, but it, there's, there's an irrepressible joy about thinking about the coming of the Messiah, especially if you think of him coming as a babe in the manger. If you think of him primarily, you know, coming with the second coming as a judge in a cloud of glory and majesty, you might be a wee bit scared. Um, But with, with the Christmas celebration, Advent is this mixture of both feelings. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so
0: we're kind of preparing, moving up to the 24th. The 24th is a vigil day. If you look at at like pre-55
1: Roman Rite, it's a day of of meat abstinence, correct? That is correct. For most of church history, December 24th has been a day of fasting and total abstinence. Yes. Which is why if you go around the world and you look at traditional Christmas Eve dinners, they are always meatless meals. Uh, The Italians make a huge deal about this. Some regions of Italy celebrate the feast of the seven fishes. Yes. Other parts of Italy have a 12 course meal for the 12 apostles. Um, Other parts of Europe, it's a particular fish in Poland, for example, it's carp. Um, In uh, the South of France, it's a, it's sort of a melange of escargot vegetables and different kinds of seafood. So, yeah, it's really cool to see all the different options out there.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. When I was in Prague this past summer, we had a tour guide. And someone in our group, we were having lunch, said, how do you all celebrate Christmas? And the tour guide, she was somewhat secular. But she said, oh, well, we always, on Christmas Eve, we have a big seafood. And she named all the stuff. I don't remember how to pronounce it. And I kind of I knew the answer. I said, so why do you all eat fish on, on Christmas Eve? She's like, I don't know. But we always do. But it goes back to this idea, cause I mean, Prague's a very Catholic city. They would have also been keeping Christmas Eve as a meatless feast or not a feast, but you know, a meatless dinner party. Yeah. So I think that's fascinating. And it's something that we've tried to incorporate since we learned about, it. even though it's not required by current canon
1: law, I think it's a good wholesome tradition. Oh, I agree. I agree. Another tradition. Um, my mother's side of the family is French Canadian. And there's a wonderful French-Canadian custom of having tout which is uh, a a pork pie, which you have after midnight mass. Ah. Oh. So you've, you know, you've done the meatless thing, but, you know, it's one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. What's the first thing you want to do is just eat meat. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that breaks the Christmas fast. Yeah, it makes
0: sense. You just that. probably walked to Midnight Mass, it's cold, you're back, you're hungry,
1: and you have, you have some good pork.
0: Okay, now what about Midnight Mass?
1: Very old tradition, um, and there are three Masses, and according to St. Thomas Aquinas, the three Christmas Masses each commemorate um, one of the three births of the Savior. His historic birth in Bethlehem, his mystical birth in our hearts, and his uh, future birth, or I should say coming, as the judge at the end of time.
0: Excellent, good. Okay, so then the 12 days of Christmas, how did Christians celebrate those 12 days from December 25th unto Twelfth Night, famous Shakespearean play, which would have been January 5th? What Did they not go to work? Did they continue to exchange gifts? Did they
1: feast the whole time? The predominant thing was topsy-turvy customs. There was a a huge inversion of social roles that took place during the 12 days of Christmas. Um, On one day, for example, servants and masters would change places. Uh, Parents and children would change places. Officers and enlisted in the army would change places. And on Twelfth Night, men and women would change places. The reason why Shakespeare named his play Twelfth Night is that it's a gender-bending play. Uh, it's it's women disguised as men and vice versa. And uh, that was the Twelfth Night tradition, uh, a, a playful sort of cross-dressing. Wow. Kind of don't want people to hear about that one. <laughs> you know, the technical term for it is mumming and it is still performed in some rural parts of the world such as uh, Newfoundland
0: okay.
1: um, I know we live in an age of great gender confusion But this does not lead to gender confusion. What it does is actually affirm the traditional social roles of men and women because you would dress as the opposite sex uh, in order to be ridiculous uh, and it was also uh, it had a, an important social function it sort of let the pressure out it's sort of a safety valve you walk a mile in the other's moccasins like it, you know Taylor if you walked a mile in your wife's high-heeled shoes Not gonna you happen. would appreciate what she goes through every day
0: <laughs> it's true in the stilettos to, exactly. If I had to clean the house in the stilettos like her, I'd, I'd really appreciate that. Exactly. So it, now what so about it, I've also seen a yeah. uh, boy bishop during this time period? What's the boy bishop about?
1: Uh, that is a beautiful tradition. Um, so this has to do with the topsy turvy customs of the the Feast of the Holy Innocents. A boy was chosen as bishop. He could be bishop for the day, or he could actually be bishop for the t- whole 12 days of Christmas. He had to give a sermon. Um, he presided over vespers, solemn vespers. Really? In church? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I did not know that. That's that, amazing. So they had him do vespers.
0: And he's he's vested in pontificals?
1: They uh, We have found uh, in medieval vestries uh vestments for a boy pontifical vestments for a boy there would be there'd be special wow. boy vestments and um I, I have a sort of fondness for this custom it was eventually suppressed because the the boy bishop would often deplete the resources of the church like he had to <laughs> buy candy
0: for all of his friends
1: or something and he would throw like a huge party for <laughs> all his buddies and it would just deplete all the resources. He well, he was acting like a, a typical medieval like medieval bishop. bishop right? Yeah, so he was irresponsible. Um, but there was a touching story that um, in in medieval England there was a boy bishop who died uh, during the twelve days of Christmas while he was bishop, and they gave him the requiem of a bishop. Wow, that's something. That's, that's kind of nice. That's kind of nice.
0: Kind of cute, but I don't know. <laughs> All right. And then we get to Twelfth Night and Epiphany. And I'm often surprised that Catholics in America, I don't know about the rest of the world, know nothing about this. And I think it's because the United States bishops transfer Epiphany every year to another to a Sunday instead of actually having it on January 6th. It's been totally obliterated. I wish the bishops would just keep it on the 6th and never transfer it because the traditions of Epiphany are just they're completely forgotten in America where you go to other places like England, or even I found in uh, the Caribbean and in Latin American countries, they have all kinds of beautiful customs around the six. So, so what is that tradition of epiphany in relationship to Christmas?
1: Yeah. So America was kind of hit by a perfect storm. Um, Even before Vatican II, the Feast of the Epiphany was not a holy day of obligation in the United States. Uh, it was in Mexico and Canada. But for some reason, uh, the United and, and across the world, as a matter of fact, for some reason, um, the United States got a dispensation from uh, it being a holy day of obligation like, again, 100 years ago. So there's that. And then the modern Christmas, which leans heavily on the exchange of gifts on December 25th, is also going to have an impact. In Spanish-speaking countries, the traditional day for the exchange of gifts is the Feast of the Epiphany. Um, And that makes sense because that's when the Magi gave gifts to the Christ child. Um, As I mentioned, my mother, French-Canadian, they referred to Epiphany as Little Christmas. So the primary exchange of gifts would happen December 25th, but there was a secondary exchange of gifts on January 6th. So, um, but, and you're right, there are so many beautiful epiphany customs around the world, but they're not really well known in the United States.
0: Yeah. Our family was traveling a few years ago. Uh, we were in, uh... Latin American Caribbean countries. And it was January 1st, which is a holy day of obligation in the United States. And I was a little nervous, Dr. Foy. I'm like, man, the Marshall family is going to not make a holy day of obligation. I was feeling kind of guilty. And then I checked in and on that day, we were on an Island. I can't remember which, and I Googled it, and it was an English protectorate. And for that Island that we were at, January 1st was not a holy day of obligation, but January 6th was a holy day of obligation. And since we were there, we were exempted from the American. And man, I was just wiping my brow like, wow, we really skated close on that one and uh, dodged the bullet. So it's odd that in America, January 1st is a holy day, which is a hard day to hit. Especially (laughs) if you if you stay up past midnight, you know, drinking champagne and then you got to wake up the next morning, go to
1: mass. I mean,
0: that's a hard one.
1: That is a hard one. Exactly. I'd rather have
0: January 6th. Bishops, if you're watching, we would like January 6th as a holy day of obligation, not the first. Do you agree with that, Dr. Foley? I
1: could, I can get behind that, yeah. maybe. Or both. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay, so um, what would be a good custom, I think last question here, what would be a good custom that we can resurrect to honor the Feast of the Epiphany? I know there's the house blessing custom, but is there something that families could do uh, that's a traditional epiphany for January 6th custom?
1: I definitely recommend the blessing of chalk. And then you, writing the initials of the three kings in the year of our Lord o- over the, the doorway. That's a beautiful custom. And you can your priest can bless that chalk easily for you. King's cake is the big thing um, where you put a coin or baby Jesus in a cake and then whoever gets that piece is king for the day. That's a lot of fun. Uh, there are all kinds of festive foods and drinks as well. Um, there's a there's a hot mulled wine called Lambswool. It's called Lambswool because it's uh, it it includes um, apples that have been peeled, and when they are bobbing in the mulled wine, they look like lambswool. So there are, there are all kinds of fun things you can do on the Feast of the Epiphany.
0: Perfect. I like that. Yeah, we do the chalk. We get the our our parish fraternity of Saint Peter blesses the chalk, and it's always available. And you bring it home, and the dad reads the prayers, and we put the 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 initials of what is it, Casper Melchior and Balthazar, the year. Read the blessing over the house. It's a it's a great tradition. And um, what about the? Uh, is there any any tradition for the vigil of Epiphany? I've never even looked into that. So is there something that people, I know there's all sorts of stuff on Christmas Eve, but what about Epiphany Eve? Is there anything that goes back in our tradition for that night?
1: There is a special uh, liturgical, um, there is a special mass for the vigil, but also I believe the blessing of Epiphany water is supposed to happen on the vigil of the feast And that is one intense blessing of water. I I, I think it's about 45 minutes. Uh, It's a very elaborate ceremony. That water gets thoroughly blessed. Um, But aside from that, the vigil of the epiphany is 12th night and 12th night is cross-dressing.
0: I'm just not down with that one, Dr. Foley. I mean, do I need to edit that out of this video? Uh, Hey, people watch the Dr. Taylor Marshall podcast and learn about cross-dressing. Or what's it called? Mumming? Mumming. Yeah. So we'll just call it mumming. People don't do that. I'm just saying, right? Don't, Don't do that. Don't do that. It's bad. All right. Dr. Michael Foley, please check out his book, Why We Kiss Under the Mistletoe, Christmas Traditions Explained. He's also the author of a dozen books, including Drinking with the Saints, Drinking with St. Nick, Drinking with your patron saints. Where can they get the epiphany recipe for that drink? You just the lambs wool Is that in one of your books?
1: It is in one of the books. Yes, it's in Drinking with St. Nick. Okay. yeah, great.
0: So uh, check out those books. Check out uh, Dr. Michael Foley. And you have a podcast, too. Why don't you tell
1: everyone about your podcast? My wife and I do a podcast, uh, Drinking with the Saints, which comes out every Thursday. And we would love for you to join us.
0: And, And where do they watch that? Is it a video or is it an audio?
1: It's an audio, and it's on both Apple and Spotify.
0: Perfect. Great. So go over to Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe to, it's called Drinking with the Saints, with the Foley's. Um, my podcast is on iTunes. A lot of people don't know that they can go and listen to Spotify while they're working out and all that. So go over there and subscribe to Drinking with the Saints with Dr. Michael Foley. And uh, we'll we'll end with the uh, the Hail Mary, and we'll pray that in Latin. Would you like to say the second half, Dr. Foley? Sure. All right. Oremus, nomine Patris et et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum benedicta tu in molieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui,
1: Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, Ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. In nomine Patris
0: et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, Dr. Michael Foley, thanks for joining me today. And thanks to everybody who supports this podcast. If you want to become a patron and I'll send you a a free signed book of rosary in 50 pages and also a free rosary. Go to patreon.com forward slash dr Taylor Marshall. You can learn more over there. And please everyone go check out Dr. Foley's books and uh, follow him over at his podcast. And remember our Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless and Godspeed. Dr. Foley, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Marshall. This was great. Till next time. All right. That's it. Very good. Excellent.